1: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 89. This week's feature, Gamer FAQ, How Do You Rate Your Games? We'll be talking about The Princess of Florence, Shipyard, and Kalis. You're listening to a
0: proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron but with better lip-syncing.
1: Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris.
0: This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew.
1: Welcome to the episode, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us at the table again this week. we got an outstanding episode for you. We're going to be talking about how we all rate games. Now, you hear us talking about board games and if we're going to give it a buy or if we're going to give it a play or we're going to give it a dodge or a burn. But we wanted to talk about our ratings on Board Game Geek. Now, hopefully you've already joined the guild and seen us there and took a look at our game collections and some of our ratings. But we wanted to talk in more detail about how and why we rate our games. On this episode, we've also been talking about our acquisition disorders. Anthony's talking about Epic. I'm talking about Mega Civilization. And Daniel is going to be talking about And Then We Held Hands. Aww.
2: Ooh, that sounds so relaxing. It sounds like a game you could play while you're playing Tokaido. Travel down the road holding hands. Yeah. Oh, I like that.
1: It's the expansion to (laughs) Takedo.
2: The game within a game. That's what it is. The game within a game.
1: All right. So with that said, let's get on to the episode. Drew, why don't you shout it from the tabletop?
2: Yeah, we got
1: news. Uh, Let me climb on up there. Shout it from the tabletops. (laughs) Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. First
2: bit of news I have to tell you is that you, the listener, can get the news before... The other guys get it. We're, we're going to be putting our news items out on the Twitter feed Monday through Saturday, five times a day. We've got some great news items for you to catch, so um, be sure to subscribe to our Twitter feed. And uh, every week, we will talk about some of those news items we tweet and uh, see if we can't dig through them a little deeper. That we, uh, One of the items we just sent out this week—where is it? Oh, here it is. Uh, the New York Toy Fair. Big, 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 big toy fair. It's like—to toys what Gen Con and SNR— well, mostly Essen, I guess, are to games. But the cool thing is, it's not just toys. There are a lot of games at the New York Toy Fair, and it's an industry event. That's why it's hard to get in. But you know what? This year, guys, we all can go because they're going to be opening up the first couple of days to the public. Like the the premier event for the toy industry. Believe me, there's going to be a lot about games there. Some of the big family game companies are going to be represented. Go to the website uh, for the New York Toy Fair. We're going to link to that article from Fortune Magazine. You can check it out, register for information, and uh, as soon as you can sign up, they will contact you. So good news for everybody. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Turn this around, go in a different direction for our final item. And appeal to everyone's artistic side. We get a chance to create something for a board game. Plaid hat is coming out with a uh, new Mice and Mystics expansion or spinoff, um, however way you want to look at it, called Tail Feathers. A lot of buzz at Gen Con and, and since. They have a contest now where you can design a character for Tail Feathers, a pilot for that game. So uh, we're going to post the link in our show notes so everybody can be a part of this. That's really cool. Have you guys ever wanted to create a
3: character or a card for a game? Oh, oh yeah. I mean dirty secret about me when i was a kid i was really big into magic the gathering so much so that i had actually had a couple of emails back and forth with one of the judges that worked for magic the like one of the full-time all they do is magic the gathering judging oh man guys we had emailed a couple times and i had talked to them about getting into des- the designing for them so i can definitely feel the impulse there i guess now the one that would be the, the most the thing that would draw me most is they want to design like a a role-playing game world like a D world uh, kind of yeah. like like eberron or what have you with the because i just feel like there's so much uh, anthropological and sociological information that isn't typically made uh, taken advantage of when these uh, environments are designed and they often feel very samey eberron sticks out as being very exceptional in this way right uh, having a very sophisticated social environment uh, so that's one that i would yeah. really like to do one day is to design a i guess a, an environment for D D or a similar role-playing game the cool is you can
2: create a specific character yourself or you can get together with friends or family to make it and they're going to create it just the way you want it let's hope they do it just the way you want it maybe they'll hire a professional artist but it'll be cool so tail feathers get your pen and paper out give it a shot that's everything from the tabletop guys Now, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you for a couple moments. Dwarves I sent down to the mine to dig for rubies. They're letting the donkeys wander around down there. I'm saying we don't need no stinking donkeys. I'll be right
1: back after I feed them some pumpkins.
2: See you guys in the final round.
1: And now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition source, That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? Alright, so, so let's game, talk about the games that, the that we really want to get the to the table. See, Anthony, why don't you one, want one, to start us maybe- off?
0: Okie doke. So there's a game that hit Kickstarter not too long ago. I think it was earlier this year. We probably talked about it. I think, Chris, you covered it. And I missed it. You know, it has a very generic name, so it's not really my fault. It's called Epic, period. That's it. Epic card game. From White Wizard Games. Those are the guys who did Star Realms. So this is their second big game. And it's from Robert Doherty and Darwin Castle. And the group there is a whole bunch of people who used to work on Magic. So, as you might guess, this is a very similar game to Magic except a few things are different first it's super streamlined a lot of the things you find in magic aren't necessarily here there's no collectible aspect to the game but it's not even really an lcg it's a single box of cards just like star realms i think it comes with 120 130 cards that's it that's all you need you can play the full game with those cards has like four or five different variants in the rule book based on those cards And the cards themselves are very cool and do lots of big, powerful things. So you're not getting a bunch of junky cards like you get in, say, a magic starter deck that you then need to build up by buying a bunch of packs. The game itself is pretty straightforward. Every turn you can play any number of zero-cost cards and then one card that costs one gold because you only get one gold per turn. So there's no mana or anything like that. Your job basically is to get enough champions on your side to deal damage to your opponent. There's some events that come out that also do cool stuff. Digging through the cards, you can see a lot of them do a lot of damage. So you have 30 points, but those can disappear very quickly. So the game plays pretty fast. It's about 20 minutes. And it has a couple of variants. If you want to play with more than two players, there's enough cards in the deck to play with four people. And... The store near me actually had copies of the Kickstarter version, so they backed it at the retailer level, and I got one of those. And so I got the base deck of cards, which I don't believe is out yet for regular retail, along with some of the promos that came with the Kickstarter. Uh, it's not a lot of cards. It's like another 20 or 30 cards. And I imagine they're going to have a bunch of expansions and additional packs down the line, like they did with Star Realms. But out of the gate, if you just buy this one box... You can play this card game. I have not yet been able to get to the table yet. It's you know just now showed up very recently, and I think Kickstarter backers are getting their copies as we speak, but it looks like a lot of fun, and I was very impressed. The artwork is very strong um it definitely evokes a lot of what you feel when you open you know a new starter set or a pack of magic cards in terms of what the cards do and how they interact and kind of the flavor text and the story being told by those. By the imagery there, I have no idea what the backstory is for this game. I know there is one, and I plan on reading it at some point. The game itself looks cool. And as a former Magic player and a recovering addict myself, Daniel, you and I are together on this. Not quite to that level, but I understand. It's quick and simple, and there's not a ton of stuff I then have to go buy. So if I just want to play a quick card game that's not even nearly as complex as an LCG... Epic looks like it could be it. So uh, this one looks pretty cool. And when it comes out, it's going to be like 10 or 15 bucks. So keep an eye out for that. It should be in the stores pretty, pretty soon. And Daniel, what about you?
3: Looking at a game this week that's pretty, I think, unique. Uh, it's on Kickstarter right now, and it's called Dot, 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 And Then We Held Hands. Uh, this game has actually had a lot of play as a print-and-play version, but they're producing a, an actual production copy now with art done by Marie Cardewat. I hope I'm in ballpark there, who is the illustrator on the original version of Dixit. So you can get an immediate feel for what the art on the card looks cards look like, and it's pretty cool. I think it fits very well. The theme of the game is that you are a couple who begins at different places in a sort of a wheel of emotion over some important conflict or issue. You've fallen apart, pushed apart by this issue, And you need to play cards that allow you to move to the proper nodes to eventually end up in the central node together in consecutive turns to win. You can play off of your own cards or the other player's cards. uh, But if any of your actions cause either player to be unable to move, the game ends. So your goal is to resolve this conflict. Now, one trick to it is you are not allowed to talk or at least not talk about the game. Uh, So the entire game is supposed to be played based off of careful attention to the uh, position of these little markers on the game board, which is supposed to be representative of your partner's emotional states and needs, uh, and use those to move forward in the appropriate way. This is one of those games that I look at and I say, it's either going to be a borderline spiritual experience playing, right? Just absolutely amazing irreplaceable experience uh, where you know you start tearing up or something right as you play or it is going to be the worst game ever where you start tearing up because of how bad it is Uh, I'm not sure which one of these it's going to be I mean, there will be tears, but it may be from profundity or it may be from sucking. And I'm not sure which one. I'm leaning towards profundity, though, partially because Dixit, you know, did what it did so very well. And it's been very well reviewed uh, by the people who've played it. Uh, And it's just, I don't know. It's such an interesting theme and an interesting take that I just have to give it a shot. Uh, Combine that with the fact that it's... $20 $20 to back the game and get a copy. 19 actually to get a copy. 24 if you want to tip the musician who wrote their soundtrack. And I'll probably end up picking this one up. And I really hope it fulfills the potential that it has. Because it really does look like it could be a truly remarkable game. So that's uh, my acquisition disorder this week. Dot, dot, dot. And then we held hands by Ludic Creations now on Kickstarter for the next eight days. Oh, wait. Well. <laughs> Well, eight days from when we record this what would mean two days from when you hear this, if you listen quickly. So, you have time. Get out there now. Back it. Go, 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 go. <laughs> uh, it's already funded. Uh, in fact, it's already funded five times over. Uh, but, you know, never too late to get in. Welcome so
1: to the future, Daniel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, we already talked about Blood Rage. Now, I want to talk about another game on the opposite side, on the Euro side. I want to talk about Mega Civilization, which is actually a huge version of the legendary development game Civilization. Now, what makes this game stand out? What makes this game so incredibly mega is literally everything about this game. So, first off, it's a game of skill, and we're talking about a Euro game of skill, that plays five to 18 players okay mind blown right so this game covers historical development of ancient civilizations from the last ice age to the dawn of the new era and it's about an 8000 year time span that you're building from scratch each player leads their own civilization as it tries to expand its culture over a map board that stretches over the mediterranean sea to india the objective of the game is to gain an overall advancement including cultural economic, scientific, political, civic, and religious factors. So this is not a war game, this is not a 4X game, this is all about building and scoring victory points. Now what's really fun and interesting about this game is that each civilization begins with a single population token. And every turn, the player increases their population by adding tokens to the areas they occupy. So if you play Civilization, you got a general idea, if you have not played the original board game, It's just basically building a whole family and then a culture and a tribe and then a just building literally everything from scratch, which is amazing. Now, what's really (laughs) funny about the game is you can play kind of a starter introductory version and that's going to last about two hours. Or you could play a short version of this game, which is going to play six to eight hours. I know this might scare off some people, Daniel, but (laughs) this this is why we have any of the podcast. You got to play the uh, you know eighteen hour game here, and this does not include setup, nor does it include breakdown, and just some other mega elements of this game. It has four map boards. It has. 2074 tokens for the 18 civilizations, 18 player mats, 840 trade cards. Now that's not the, that's not the the crazy number. The trade cards are those little small tiny cards. 729 civilization advance cards. Now these are super large cards. And then somehow, I don't know how this is, but only one rule book. Doesn't say how many pages it is, but only one rule book. So Mega Civilization is a mega game for mega players who really, really want to dig into building a civilization from scratch. It's a game that I want to get to the table. I can't imagine how I'm going to be able to do that. But if you're interested in playing this huge, enormous civilization building game, please let me know because I will find you and we will sit down and we will drag Daniel kicking and screaming and tie him to the chair (laughs)
3: Please seek help immediately if this (laughs) seems like something you want to do with your life. 16 hours, Chris? Well, look. I I have read people's dissertations in that much time. This is just – 16 hours of
1: high mental expenditure. Come on. Look, does it make it easier if I throw in at the end that we'll be able to hold hands? No.
3: (laughs) No, Not after that. You say this is the exact opposite of Blood Rig, but I can think of nothing (laughs) that would send me into a frenzy faster than trying to play this game <laughs> oh my so
1: uh if you love big euro games or if you love mara Clash games where people flip out mega civilizations for you
0: yeah if you see this enter chris's collection on board game geek somebody call and make sure daniel's okay make sure <laughs> he's kidnapped you'll see me Daniel. update my location i'll be
3: uh, Chris. like i got this in my collection Daniel's location has been updated <laughs> to Belfast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's our acquisition disorders for this week. And now at the table with BGA. All right. So for our at the table this week, we're going to talk about three games that we're able to get to the table. Let you know if the game is a buy and you should definitely add it to your collection Or, if the game is just a play, but you should definitely sit down and get a chance to get into it, or if the game is a dodge and you should run away from that table, or possibly, and hopefully not, you come across a game that's a burn and you should avoid at all costs. All right, Daniel, why don't you start us off?
3: My other table this week is one that we both played together along with Dave, which is Kalos. Kalos, as I'm sure many of you are aware, is one of the most popular Euro games probably of all time. It's ranked 20 on BoardGameGeek overall, and 15 in strategy game rank. And just to to, to spoil for what comes ahead, I did not enjoy it very much. Now, this is not to say Kalos wasn't a good game, and I actually really enjoyed the first couple of rounds and the last couple of rounds. But that whole middle section where pretty much nothing happened, I could have done without. And I think this is because Kalus is on the very far end of pure strategy zero tactics. There's very little that changes rap- turn to turn or very rapidly in this game. And this isn't really one of those, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. In fact, the best laid plans of mice and men pretty much go exactly like you think they would in Kalos, which doesn't keep me engaged very well. I like to have the feeling, I like having a strategy, right? I like having a grand plan, but I feel like I want to defend that strategy every second of the game from unpredictable circumstance, from other players pushing on me, I want to feel like there's always something going on, right? There's always critical decisions to be made that will allow me to either adapt to the changing environment or go extinct. Uh, And Kayless, that's really not the case. Once the path has begun, it plays out in a very predictable way. Uh, And it really just lost interest for me very quickly. That said, if the game were about half as long, maybe even shorter, I think it could be a lot of fun. So maybe there's a a place for Kalos Light. But as it is, there's just too much dead time in the game for me where things are essentially going according to plan for everybody. Unless you just forget something or make an oversight. Uh, It's just going to be smooth sailing. And... Smooth seas aren't very fun to tell stories about, and they're not very good for jet skiing. I don't know. I'm kind of making an analogy here. It's kind of forced, but it's too smooth for me in the middle ground. I really want a little bit of chaos. I really want to have to fight for my plan tooth and nail, and Kalis did not do that for me. So I am going to have to give Kalis a dodge.
1: Well, I got a chance to play this with you, Daniel, and I really did enjoy it. I see what you're saying here, especially the mid-game, where it does lag a little bit as you're building up all these different buildings down a path that eventually will come to an end. But, you know, there's some factors as far as how fast those buildings are built. And I guess it's the provost, how fast he moves down the board as well. So, I like this game so much because I do like the heavy strategy element. You do have to think several moves in advance, be able to pick the right buildings, and then hopefully not get stuck in a situation where you can't activate those buildings. So, the game basically is about receiving resources in order to purchase tiles that will let you purchase buildings. The buildings go on this road, and then when you have a chance, you can place a worker there... And if you get lucky enough, as I said, you can actually activate that building and use its special ability and then wash, rinse, repeat, right? You're still collecting resources. You're still building buildings. You're still extending the track of things you can do. As you extend this pathway to building this cathedral, new and better technologies and resources become available. It's a victory point game. It has some different elements that I haven't seen before in a Euro game. It is one of, if not the classic, worker placement games. And if you're a fan of worker placement games, I highly recommend you sitting down to play this. I will say that when we played this, it was surprising that you do make some mistakes throughout the game. And it's like, in order to do this thing on Space 1, I need resources on Spaces 5 and 6. Oh, I can't believe I made that mistake. And we were all making that mistake. So this game has a very, very, very subtle brain burn throughout the game but that being said i enjoyed it a great deal it's a great euro i don't know if it does anything new in comparison to brand new euros that are out there but i highly recommend a play of this game so yeah if you're a strategy guy play it if you're tactics guys like daniel maybe you should dodge it
3: yeah for me all of the tactics in the game could have been eliminated by a pen and a pad of paper All the, like, variation came from people just forgetting to do something they already planned for, and that that I don't find very satisfying.
1: There was an element where you could move a marker in order to stop someone from building, but, you know, maybe that happened two or three times a game, and it wasn't tremendously detrimental to other players. But that being said, it's a Euro game, and that's how Euro games play.
3: Yep, and that's why Daniel doesn't most of the time.
1: And that's why Chris does. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I do play some Euros. I just didn't <laughs> like that one. Fair enough.
1: All right. Well, that's me. All right. So the game that I got to play this week is Shipyard. Now, as big of a Euro fan as I am, I got to admit that every once in a while, I look at a game, and especially a Euro game, and I'm just like, uh, yeah, I don't know if I want to sit down for the next two, three hours with that game. And Shipyard actually was one of those games it looked bland it looked boring it looked uninteresting but in fact it was nothing like that at all shipyard is about building ships and hopefully by providing them with the right crew the right equipment and making them as fast and as richly powerful as possible because when you build a ship, it kind of takes off and you score the ship, which is fun. And and actually, you are purchasing different ship parts throughout the game. Now, what's really fun about this is you can get bows, you can get middles or stern tiles, and each turn you're able to pick three tiles. There is a bottom section where everything is free, and then as you move up, they become more costly. But thankfully, as people pick tiles, those tiles will eventually move down And the later tiles are actually more beneficial for your ship. So you get to pick up these pieces. You get to place them on your shipyard player board. And based upon how you arrange them, you could set yourself up to build a big ship or a quick little small ship. Now, once, as I said, the ships are built, what you'll be able to do is move your ship. Now, I mean not the big tile ship. You'll actually get this little wooden ship, which you get to move on these Little canal tiles. And on these tiles, they have little circles. And some of the circles have special symbols. If you move across one of those symbols, you'll check your ship. And, for example, you might have a lifeboat on one of these symbols. You'll check your ship. And if it has a lifeboat symbol, you'll score points for that. So that's really fun and interesting. You're actually setting up like a little mini map tableau. So as you're renting these canal tiles, you're setting this up in advance for your ship to sail upon. Now, if for some reason the speed of your ship is more than your canal tiles, then your ship can't run at all. Now, beyond getting the ship and running it out there, you're purchasing commodities because you need to trade resources for money to build this game. Money is very tight. There's also equipment such as sails, smokestacks, stacks, cranes, and a gun tile that you can add to your ship. So as the game is going on, you can pick up all these different pieces and crew And employees to be able to put on your ship at later turns. Now, at the start of the game, you're going to be given six different tiles. These are end of the game bonuses. Now, here's what's really interesting, and Anthony talked about this recently about these final hidden objectives. Well, this is true too. You start with six, but each round you take away a tile, and at the end of the game, you only have two tiles. I don't think I've ever seen this in a game before where it actually gives you so many different options and as gameplay is continuing, you can pull away those options that are not working for you and then end up with two final options that's hopefully scoring you a lot of points. This game seems heavy, it seems crazy, it's got a million little different shits and bits, but it's actually really fun when you get to put the ships together. It's an outstanding game and honestly... If I do get a chance, I'm gonna buy this game because there is so much fun to this that uh, I just actually was smiling. I played the first round of this game and I was like, yeah, I like this game. Now, there are a lot of rondelles in this game. and If you like rondelles, this is the game for you. It has some really innovative mechanics when using the rondelles and there is just one separate rondelle for these special action tiles that could almost be an expansion to this game and doesn't really need to be in the game but it's there which is cool so Rondell's building ships moving across tiles and secret mission goals that give you extra points what a great game go out and pick up shipyard all right anthony what about you this week
0: all right so uh i got i've actually gotten a chance to play games a little bit uh, the princes of florence This is a game I've seen floating around a little bit. I think it's in the top 50 on Board Game Geek or somewhere in there. So probably I just saw it when I'm cycling through that top 100. And it is in print right now. We actually, as we were playing it, we kept telling ourselves it was not in print because I had not seen it around. But it is in print from Rio Grande. Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich Design. I say all this because it is an older game. It's from 2000, and the current edition that's out is, I think, from 2010. So you're not going to be able to find the copy that originally came out, which is the one I played uh, at the the game night this last week. But there is a newer version, which actually has more stuff. So it is a better version to get anyways, and I, I think it's pretty cheap on Amazon. So all that said, the game itself, it's a Euro. So today we're doing Euro Day, apparently, all three of us, older Euros. And it is a combination of a bunch of different mechanics. It was actually very interesting, and the first time I played through it, Uh, It was very intriguing, and the second time even more so, and I'll explain why. It starts with, first, the theme. You are um, a rich house in the Renaissance, and you are trying to support artisans who will uh, make these masterful works for you, and you will get uh, prestige at the end of the game. So the goal is basically to complete these works by collecting the various things that the particular artisans like. So there are three different freedoms, there are three different types of landscape, and then there are a whole bunch of different buildings that you will get throughout the game in a variety of different ways. And the goal is to get the items listed on these work cards that you're gonna have, um, the profession cards that you'll get at the beginning of the game and that you can recruit later on. And t- for each of those things that you have listed on the card, so each card will have one of those I- three things listed, and For each of those, you get a certain number of points. Now, the interesting thing here with the game is each round of the game, and there are seven rounds, requires you to hit a certain minimum number of points. So the first round of the game, you can publish a work if it's only worth seven, which is almost, it's really easy to do. Because if you have all three of those items, you get 10. Um, And then there's a bunch of other ways to increase that. By the end of the game, it needs to be worth at least 17 which is not possible without getting those other augmentations. Uh, So throughout the game, you kind of need to build up this engine where you can increase the point values of the works that you're publishing, but you also get all the resources you need to publish those works. It has a lot of different things going on. And so there's no, you can't do everything. You have to kind of focus your attention and hopefully do it efficiently. So for example, at the beginning of the game, you'll be given four of these profession cards. What you want to do when you get those cards is find commonalities between them because you're going to discard one of those cards. So, for example, in the second game I played, I looked at all four cards and three of them had the same freedom they had the freedom of opinion. So I took those three cards knowing that I only needed to get the one freedom. And because the number of actions in the game is so limited, that helped me eliminate one or two actions that I might have to take later. The game itself, the play of it, is split into two different segments of each round. So there's seven rounds, but then there's two halves of each of those rounds. The first half is an auction, and then the second half, everybody just gets two actions to do as they please. This is really interesting because some of the stuff you need for your board is auctioned, and some of it you can just buy, but all of it is limited. So you do have to plan and you have to rush a little bit to buy the things you know you need. And then certain things that are very, very beneficial to you will be auction only. So you kind of have to fight for them and make sure you get enough money to, uh, to win those in the auction. For example, all three of the landscape tiles are auction only. The jester, which adds two points to any of the works you might publish, is auction only. And the builder, which reduces the cost of the buildings you might purchase, is auction only. Um, A couple other things that are auction only, the prestige cards, which are victory points at the end of the game. So that's an important part of the scoring mechanics. All those things you can only get through auction. And each of the auctions is going to be 100 money at a time. And you start the game with 3,500. So everything's kind of in these larger denominations. But with a larger group of people, and we play with four the first time and then five, Uh, it can get pretty heated because people will really need the one thing they need. And if everybody needs the same thing at the same time, it can get very expensive. That said, the money doesn't get too tight in this game. Uh, And the reason for that is every time you publish your work, let's say your work is worth 20 points. What really happens here is you get 20, or you actually get 2,000 money. So you get 100 florins for each of those points of that work. And then you get to decide how much of that you're going to trade in for victory points. So you could say, I'm going to keep 10 of this as florins. So I'll take a 1,000 florins, and I'm going to trade the rest of it in for victory points. Or I really need money. I'm going to keep all 2,000 as florins. Or if it's the end of the game, forget it. I'm going to trade it all in for victory points because that's what I need right now. Very, very interesting mechanic because early in the game, you're thinking, well, you never know how much money you're going to need. But by the end of the game, you're just like, victory points, however you can get them. And this is really the only way to get that many victory points in one chunk. There's a lot going on here. The Whenever you buy one of these tiles, you have to place it on your board in front of you, and they have to fit in a certain pattern. The buildings, for example, can't be adjacent to each other unless you buy two of the builders, which is actually relatively hard to do because of the auction mechanic. I know I listed a lot of mechanics, but it all comes together extremely well in the end. It's very smooth. It runs very quickly. The seven-round game, even with five people, took us an hour and a half. So it's it, out of the gate, even with a bunch of new people learning the game. It happens very quickly. It is one of those games where there is some strategy to it, but you're constantly adjusting. Because of the auction, you may not get what you need. Because of the cards that get drawn, you may not get what you need. So to Daniel's point earlier, you have to have a strategy to some point, but you also need to shift it occasionally, depending on what's available. I really like that Um There's a lot of mitigation here. Whenever you draw cards, you draw multiple cards and get to pick them. But at the same time, there's the randomness of the draw of those cards. So this was a really fun game for me. It's one that I had not played previously. I've only ever seen it kind of floating around on the game tables elsewhere. I think it's one I'm probably going to pick up. It's relatively inexpensive. It is in print right now. And the version that's in print the, the expansion actually adds uh, characters to the game, which actually adds a, a new a mechanic that's going to make those gestures not quite as important and help each of the players be a little more asymmetrical, which is always fun. So Princes of Florence, definitely a play, possibly a buy, because this might be a hole in my collection with that kind of accessible open-ended auction euro. And because it's available right now and it's a Rio Grande game and it might go out of print and they don't reprint their stuff very often, um, it might inch up to a buy especially at this price so definitely a fun one worth checking out
1: and now bga's feature review so for our feature review this week we want to talk about gamer faqs so a frequently asked question is do you guys rate games and if so what do you base it upon and you know what's the percentages when it comes to your collection And maybe whether you're rating just your collection alone or all board games. So for this week, the three of us, myself, Anthony, and Daniel, are going to tell you about our own rating systems on Board Game Geek and give you a little bit of an insight in what goes into our final ratings. So gentlemen, do you all rate games on Board Game Geek? Anthony, what about you? I do.
0: Yeah, I started doing this a few months ago, I think. At this point, I've rated every game that I own that I've played significantly enough to feel like i have an opinion on and a bunch of games i don't own that i have a significant opinion on as well um so it's about 130
1: looking okay
0: so that i've given ratings to and there are some games that i own that i have not rated just because either i haven't played them at all which i loathe to admit is a pretty good chunk of my collection or i just haven't played it enough so there might be a game that, you know, we got to the table once and I just don't feel like I had a good enough feeling for it or maybe I didn't like it but I feel like everybody else does and maybe I missed something so I want to play it again before I give it a rating. But for me, I like doing this just because it helps me kind of categorize what I have and what I'm looking at. So like if I need to thin my collection, I can look at the bottom of this list and be like, "Do I really want this game that I gave a 6 to?" And it also helps me remember the games that I think are awesome. So if I'm too busy focusing on new stuff all the time. I can not look at my existing collection of stuff that I've already rated a nine or a 10 and be like, why am I not playing these? Because they're amazing. And Daniel, what about you? You rate
1: games, right?
3: Uh, I have, I've rated every game that I've, that I own and have played or any, and a bunch of other ones that just sort of stuck out to me. So I've rated uh, 80 board games and 12 expansions on board game geek. And obviously we rate stuff here all the time. I kind of started as a way to keep track of my own collection, because, it, you know, you, you start sort of letting it slip after a while, and I don't want to have that feeling I've had once or twice where I've gotten in, started playing a game, and going, oh, wait, this game. Oh, no, I hate this game. It's Wait, this seems like three hours. Oh, God, I'm stuck here. Uh, so, I, I, you know, useful to keep track of your feelings. Uh, and I've got to say, I'm pretty proud that my personal ratings – Are almost-a-perfect bell curve slightly skewed upwards. So, uh, you know, there's uh, something to be said for that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, when I went to look at the three of ours, I was like, oh, my rating, my average is pretty high. And then I looked at Chris's, I'm like, oh, I don't feel as bad. And then I looked at Daniel's, I'm like, man, Daniel, why do you got to go and do it, (laughs)
3: like, have an accurate curve there? (laughs) I'm not going to lie, I went through this, like, Six times adjusting ratings relative to one another to make sure they were, like put together, right? Because there would sometimes and I'd be like, oh, this is like a a seven and I put another game, you know thirty games later I' like, oh, this is also a seven. And then I looked at those two games like these games are not the same quality. right One of these is way better than the other. So something is wrong with my categorization here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you gotta anchor it into your uh, r- relative games, right? It's a relative rating system. But my average ratings is 6.89. So, you know, that's a pretty, pretty solid mean, kind of where you'd expect it to lie.
1: Okay. So, for me, I blame this whole on Daniel because originally I wasn't rating my games on Board Game Geek. And he was. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it. Because I started to add my entire collection on Board Game Geek because sometimes when I would go out to a gaming group, they would ask me what I had and they would just – Want to know what my board game geek name was so that they could check out my collection and see what I, I should bring for the next time. And I was always like, ah, you know, I put some games up there, but it was a while ago and I don't know, maybe I'll get back to it. So recently I got a chance to add pretty much everything with maybe the exception of, I don't know, maybe about another 20 different expansions for attack wing and maybe another 20 expansions for star wars x-wing miniatures but they're kind of all thrown together for the moment so it would be kind of hard to kind of pull those apart but maybe one rainy day i'll kind of do that and add that to the collection there are also some games that i leave with my family because they're more on the party game side games that i probably wouldn't play with a game group but with family they're perfect so it's probably another 10 or 15 that are just sitting at home somewhere just wait and get played. But generally, I rated all of the games that I own, with a few exceptions, like Anthony said, that I currently haven't felt secure enough in giving a particular rating because I just feel like I haven't played it enough. Or maybe the first play kind of met with some particular rulebook issue or such. So until I feel comfortable, I don't like to rate a game until I feel like I truly know the game. So right now, just the games that I own, but I absolutely positively will kind of expand to pretty much every game that i've played even if i don't own it because i think that's where the real fun comes in where you can kind of compare your ratings to other people and i know that a lot of people on board game geek take that very seriously so i actually started to go in there and actually add text comments too to explain where my ratings came from so anthony you were talking about your percentages compared to us What did you actually come up with in references to your 10s, your 9s, your 8s and such? Uh, Yeah, I don't have a whole lot under 7 or
0: 6. And I guess there is a a selection bias here just in the fact that these are the games I own. So if I own it, I probably like it. Um, (laughs) I can't imagine I would hold on to a 3 or a (laughs) 2. There are a couple. There's a 5 and a 4 in there. But the vast majority of these are between 7 and 9. So... My average was 7.65. I have four tens, 10s, uh, 39s, 53 8s, and 28 7s. So wow. I have a nice curve between 7 and 10. Um, okay. And then on the expansion side, it looks about the same, the majority of them in a 7 or 8 range. So the majority of the games on there are 8s. So to me, that says I'm... At least the games I own are the ones I really like. And then there are a handful of games that kind of fell into the you know, the outlier category of four, five, six, And maybe I picked those up and didn't like them and just have yet to get rid of them.
1: <laughs> okay. So, Daniel, what about our uh, standard deviation guy? W- where are you at with all that?
3: Uh, well, so I break down. I'm 7.5% tens, 8.8% nines, 21.2 and eights, 20% sevens, 30% sixes. And then two point five fives five percent fours, three point eight percent threes and <laughs> no twos, and one point two percent ones okay uh, which is that that's card to get cards against humanity all by itself down there okay um, so I've got a pretty good uh, curve there, uh, and I went through you know all the games that I can really remember having strong impressions of as well as the ones that I've owned and played frequently and evaluated them. So, and I said I went as I said I went through a couple of times making sure that the relative values lined up because sometimes when you're not thinking about it right you'll say oh this is a 7 and that's a 7 and that's a 7 sure yeah that's a 7 I like it that's a 7 and then you'll go back and look these things are not at all the same thing right one of these games is one of you know an amazing game I'd tell anybody to buy so that should be like a 9 one of these games is so 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 maybe it should be like a 6 or even a 5 right uh So I think that paying attention to your sort of relative ratings as you go is a really valuable way to keep uh, attention and avoid things like just total skewing to one side or the other where you're like, everything's a 10 because you've just erased the meaning of that category.
1: Sure. So, speaking of everything is a 10, let's talk about my ratings. So, (laughs) I had 25 games that I rated a 10, and that was about 20% of my collection here. I had about 25 games for my nines, and that was, once again, about 20%. I had about 30 games for my 8, which was another 25%. 31 games for my rating of a 7, which is another 25%. And then I had about 8 games for a rating of 6, which was about 6.5%. And then about 3 games for a 5, which is about 2.5%. So for me, this is my collection. I personally have picked these games out and done a lot of research in advance and usually play games before I buy them. It's pretty rare if I buy a game without having played it, unless it's a Kickstarter, and then that becomes a little bit iffy. pretty much happy with my distribution here, and actually, in fact... I'm really glad that most of the games that I own are really on the upper scale because it'd be really expensive to own a lot of games on the lower end. Now, as Anthony said, I probably have some games that need to be traded and some games that either I haven't even bothered with because it looks so terrible, so therefore I haven't rated it yet. But, you know, like I said, there's probably about another 20 or some odd games that are kind of floating around and haven't a chance to rate yet. But in general, I feel pretty good about the ratings. So, guys, let's talk about some of the games, maybe one or two each in those types of range, so people can get a sense of what a 10 is for you in comparison to maybe what is a 5 or a 6. So, Anthony, why don't you tell us about some notable numbers in your collection?
0: All right. So, opening up my 10s, I have actually not given anything a true 10.
1: Ooh. Um,
0: they're all, like, 9.5 and up. Okay. Because apparently I decided to go point fives. <laughs> um, that's how I solved the problem of... Well, these aren't the same. This one should be rated higher. (laughs) But the highest rated game I own is War of the Ring. Um, I'm very happy with that. That's a game that I, uh, I feel is near perfect in its execution and absolutely love how it plays. And I'm really excited for the second expansion. I don't think it's necessary necessarily. We'll see what it does. But more stuff for War of the Ring. Let's do it. I put Caverna up there as well. I feel like that's a near-perfect worker placement game. And then the Lord of the Rings LCG is uh, up there as well with the 9.1, and that's, to me, one of the best solo experiences I have as a board game, and it's so expandable. So there are factors there that influence the game, that maybe the game's not perfect, but the experience as a whole, to Mm -hmm. me, is very near-perfect. And Imperial Settler is not quite up in that realm, but it's, it's up there, and I recognize as a game, as a piece of game um it's not necessarily a nine or a ten but for me it's pretty close because experience wise it's well up there now on the other end of the spectrum there are some games that i didn't enjoy very much brussels 1893 is one of my lower rated (laughs) games this is not a game i own but it is one i felt necessary to go out and rate i give that one a five wow you gave Um, it a five i know it's a little higher than i thought i'd like you are a
1: generous generous man
0: I know. I didn't hate it, hate it. I just really disliked my experience playing <laughs> it. Um, Into the Year of the Dragon also made that, and that's, I know, a controversial pick. Both of those are. I think they're pretty well rated in general. But just in general, did not enjoy them, and I felt strongly enough about the plays that I had of them to give them ratings. A lot of the times, if I dislike a game that much, I don't play it a second time. So I don't really want to give it a rating and put the number out there and say this game's horrible when I've only played it once. Now we have a podcast and I do that every week. So <laughs> there you go. If, if I go to the trouble of saying something's a dodge or a burn on the podcast, I, I'm, I want to go back and rate everything that you know I've given that strong of an opinion on. Um, and these two are games that I did. The very bottom end of my collection is a game that I still own, unfortunately. And there's no reason to get rid of it because it's it's worth like five bucks. But that's the Game of Thrones Westeros Intrigue. That's the super pasted on theme for that pyramid card game. That I we remember played. that game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I gave this one a four and only gave it a four because if you ignored the theme completely, it's not a horrible game. No. Execution. It's just the sheer gall of pasting that theme on there and putting it out there and making it so I can't play it with children who would probably enjoy it a lot more than I did (laughs) makes it a four. Because I'm like, who am I going to play this with? Nobody cares. There are better Game of Thrones games out there that we can play. That's true. Uh, So that's the spectrum for me. It's games that were super disappointing on one end uh, and on the upper end of the games that I feel the ones that I'm giving the best ratings to are the ones where the experience itself kind of transcends the game a little bit. Actually sitting and playing it just feels good, and combined with the you know a really strongly built game, um, those are the spectrums that I'm working on.
1: All right, Daniel, what about you?
3: Oh well, so I, I sort of run it kind of based off of our rating system here, which is. I go tens are essentials, things that I would tell anybody who's looking for a game to pick up. That's going to include things, some predictable ones like Caverna, Defenders of the Realm, you know, best-in-class kind of games. The one that's probably most surprising, judging by the how far away it is from the average geek rating, is Gravwell, but that wouldn't be surprising that anyone, to anyone who's listened to me talk about that game that Grabwell earns a 10 by my standards. From there, you get 9.8s. Those are buys, like uh, Nevermore. You know, these fantastic games, really great games, but not so great that I would feel you're you're somehow lacking for not having it or having played it. Then you start getting down into your plays. So 7s, you see things like Summoner Wars Master Set Pandemic. 6s, you've got Galaxy Trucker, uh Power Grid. Games that are fun but uh you know not worth losing your hat over uh and then you start getting into the dodges and the burns uh just looking at the uh what is it the category uh biggest delta or most bizarre ratings thing that board game geek will do for you the ones that'll be most surprising i guess are cards against humanity gets a one because it's not a game it's a long fart joke (laughs) Um, which is a delta of five point three six, so the average rating is six point three. Calus um, Twa and Castle Panic all got threes. Gravwell got a ten. Nevermore a nine. Elder Sign and, uh, and Colosseum fours. Defender Rome ten. And then we start getting into the point where I suspect I'm within a standard deviation, so they're not as surprising. Elder Sign main game got a four. Mice and Mystics got a ten. That sort of thing. But in general, my, my two ends represent essentials and burns. And then everything in between follows in a pretty predictable order.
1: So for my 10's, what I'm really looking for is a game that's complete. From top to bottom, the game is solid. The first turn that you're playing the game, you feel like, yes, I enjoy this game. I don't need to play an hour into the game to realize I like the game. The mechanics are solid. The artwork is decent. The components work. It just is the complete package. So what I'm looking for here when it comes to my 10s is that complete package. And maybe sometimes I'll give it a little bit of leeway if there's an expansion that tightens things up. So, for example, Seven Wonders is a game that I give a 10. Now, this is not a ultimate type of game but if you add the leaders to this game it really makes it a beautiful game very strategic and somewhat tactical when you play certain cards and some expansions i, t- I added as my tens here too so the defenders of the realm heroes expansions are outstanding dixit journey which is a great game and it's probably the best dixit game out there it's just a solid party game for gamers The artwork is beautiful. The mechanics are nice. The game board is brilliant. Love Letter, small, quick kind of filler game, but it's a solid game with great artwork and there's really nothing to dislike about that game. I also gave a 10 to War of the Ring, just like Anthony. Uh, Suburbia is a 10 for me. Glory to Rome is a 10. Castles of Burgundy, Bora Bora, Dominaire. uh, Caverner, just like Anthony, too. That was a 10 for me, too. Now, as... Daniel was saying my buys tend to be a 10, a 9, sometimes an 8, depending on how much a game costs. And then my plays are going to be seven, 6s, and 5s. My dodges are going to be four threes 3s, and 2s. And then my burns are going to be a 1. Now, I don't own any burn games, obviously, so that didn't kind of play into my list. But typically, if we're going to go on the opposite end, at least the games that I own, my 5s, I'm going to be talking about games like Buccaneer Bones or Apples to Apples or Martian Dice. You know, games that they're cute and they do what they do, but they really don't do anything above and beyond that. So I guess I'll sit down and play it if I have to or if there's people that I really like and I want to play with them. And you'll also notice if you take a look at my list, my sixes and fives are pretty much across the board up for trade. So... I'm looking for a solid game that plays well each and every time, even though it may not be the greatest game, but it does what it does, and it does it well. So to wrap up, that's our Gamer Frequently Asked Questions. How do we rate our games? If you want to follow up with us and take a look at our own list, you can find me, Chris, at Tricolor Tiger. That's Anthony. What about you? Uh, Mine's
0: easy. It's C-H-T-F-L-D. I'm also the manager on the guild, so if you're in the guild, you find me there at the top of the page. If you're not, you should join the guild, and then you can find me there at the top of the page. Anthony C.
3: And I'm, it might even be easier, I'm Daniel at B-G-A, but that is A-T, as spelled out A-T. I couldn't get the little at sign to work. So Daniel at B-G-A, and drop me a line, let me know what you think yell at me for being mean to your favorite games or for <laughs> usual internet rela- relationships there you yeah, go. yeah i mean we yell at daniel weekly but he needs a
0: little you know he's got to remember there's other people out there
3: <laughs> other people, people. To yell at me yeah
0: you you hurt them with your opinions daniel <laughs> we have all the tens man well i have nines but chris and i you know we, we love games it's great
1: why yeah. won't you, why won't you make a civilization with me daniel <laughs> there's so chris. much love in the mega
3: you i would need to be making salary to play that game (laughs) (laughs) all right so
1: you heard him guys donate to our patreon account and daniel will play mega civilization for you
3: this is the only time you're ever going to hear me say this please don't donate to our (laughs) patreon account we really don't need it it's fine we'll be
1: okay all right so we want to hear back from you how do you rate games Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, especially our guild on BoardGameGeek where all this fun stuff is happening. And let us know how you rate games. And now, our final
2: round. Hey guys, I'm
3: back.
1: Yay, Drew's back. Yay,
3: how are the donkeys? We got
2: them to work. All I had to do was feed the dwarves some pumpkin. I don't know, I never knew they liked pumpkin, but they do. They're happy, they're fine, they're getting along with the donkeys, putting them to work and got a lot more rubies so i'm happy to
1: i don't know who to call but i feel like i should call many people on you drew <laughs>
0: someone's being exploited
1: yeah many many people and donkeys are being exploited uh, but no, i just don't they, know who to call
2: <laughs> i have placed my workers and that's totally legit man i, I can do that and get away with that it's called worker placement you ever heard that
1: mm. Wazuve uve when you need them <laughs>
2: Hey, I, I really missed your feature. I wish I could have been there. It got me to thinking about ratings for games and the ratings that you see on the box. You know how they have the the number of people and how long it takes and what ages, but they're just not enough ratings. There's so much more we need to know about a game before we buy it. So I thought, let's all talk about ratings we want to see on the box. And for me, it's Footprint. I end up with so many games that are just too big for the space that I have. We had to actually go out and get a table that's about four by four now. It's really nice. That's the biggest we have. And then we also have a coffee table. But I need to know ahead of time how big a space I'm going to use, whether it's too big for my space or whether I got to borrow somebody's card table um, to expand it. So that's what I want to see on a box. Size of footprint. Daniel, how about you?
3: Well, for me, it's going to come down a lot to the, the reading involved. I want to know how long the rule book is, how complex the rule book is, how many words are on the cards. Now, part of this is just because I'm kind of lazy, and part of this is because I have a tendency to play with people. But a couple of people in my frequent group are not native English speakers. And while they may have very good English skills, it still puts an unfair burden on them when there is a small dissertation on the bottom of every card. And I think a few things, especially like, how many normal English words did you give really bizarre, specific meanings to? Because that's going to be a problem when I'm telling my you know my friend that they need to move their dude to a deed so they can boot to use their draw power. And it's eventually just, come on, seriously, there are normal words that mean these things. Normal words that people might actually know. Uh, so for me, it's it's going to come down to rulebook complexity and language dependence. Those are two things that are very close to my heart. Would not it be interesting if they could write rules or cards in basic English? I haven't but... seen anything written in it in a long time. I <laughs>
0: know, But it would be nice, I'll tell you. Anthony, what would you like to see on the box? Uh, you know what comes up every now and then, and it's always frustrating, and you always feel a little bad when it does, is if a game is completely unfriendly to the colorblind or really anybody who might have a specific um, a situation in which the components or the, the, the way that the information is conveyed, I guess it's kind of dovetails with uh, what Daniel was saying, is if the people playing can't fully understand or interact with the content of the game, it's not as much fun for them. And sometimes it's just not possible to play. There's zero reason for a game not to be colorblind friendly. So if it is not, I would like for the box to tell me so. Uh,
2: that's actually very reasonable and easy to, to put on the box. Hey, Chris, how about you? What would you like to see on the box?
1: Well, for me, what's really important when you're playing an AmeriClash game is to know before you get started or before you bring other players into the game, how much of the IP, and by that I mean intellectual property, do you really have to know previously in order to truly enjoy the game? So, for example, there are some games like the DC Deck Builder that when you play a card, it, it's typically going to say, draw a card or plus one power or minus one attack or something. Really basic stuff. And the information about that universe really doesn't come into play. But if you take a game like the Game of Thrones, the living card game, it's essential to know what the other houses are known for and even what specific cards or characters. Are really known for because that's going to play a lot into your strategy and your deck building. So I really want to know how much do I need to know before I'm playing a game because I want to get the maximum fun out of it.
2: Man, that's true. That is something specifically you need for Amerigames. games. Euro games, eh? Doesn't matter. It's just an abstract with a theme pasted on it. So,
1: <laughs> is he European? <laughs> Good. Done. <laughs>
2: um, maybe we should have like uh, you know how they have letter. Warnings and then they have letter abbreviations, just this IP stamped on the box. I mean, you gotta know the IP before you play this. That's pretty good. That's our final round for today, guys.
1: So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. And also, if you can, please check out our Patreon account. The more that you can do for us, the more we can do to bring new players into our great gaming hobby. Until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Daniel.
0: And this is Drew.
1: We'll save you a seat at the table right next to Daniel as we force him to play Mega Civilization.